0: What is going on, movie lovers? Welcome back to another edition of No Content for Old Men. This is the podcast where every week I give you reviews of the latest movies and some streaming suggestions for your weekend. As always, I'm your host, Matt Craig. Thank you so much for listening, and we're back, baby. After uh, missing, I think it was my only my second week of the year that I've missed, we are, we are back in full swing, and we're talking about Candyman. Uh, which is a pretty fun horror movie uh, that tries to be something more, <laughs> and that's, uh, that's the tease. Uh, we'll also be talking about Worth, which is the new movie on Netflix, which I very much enjoyed um, in celebration of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. It feels like a perfect time. Uh, the Card Counter, which is a new movie from Paul Schrader. We'll be talking about a classic, probably like the granddaddy of all heist movies um, on streaming. And then uh, uh, three TV shows, three comedies that I like to flip on at the end of the night that I think you guys will also enjoy. So plenty to talk about in this episode. Welcome back, and thank you, as always, for listening. Um, you can get in touch with me anytime at Mr. Matt Craig on Twitter or through my newsletter at mattcraig.substack.com to let me know what you think of any of the shows and movies that I recommend and also what I should be watching, uh, which I I always look forward to uh, you guys' recommendations. So with that in mind and without further ado, let's talk about Candyman. The Bechdel Test was first published in a comic strip in 1985 when Alison Bechdel laid out a character's criteria for female representation in movies. Number one, the movie must have at least two women. Number two, who talk to each other. Number three, about something other than a man. Seems pretty simple, right? Yet you'd be surprised how many giant movies failed to pass the Bechdel test. To name a few, Avatar, The Avengers, the original Star Wars trilogy, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Social Network, even female-led movies like My Best Friend's Wedding, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and on and on and on. Why do I bring that up when discussing the racially-themed horror adventure Candyman? Because it might be time to create a new test designating movies in which two black characters are allowed to have a conversation that isn't about white people. Now, this movie would pass that test, but only barely. It would seem at first glance at first glance like this particular movie would be unavoidably racial. The story is adapted from real life events that took place in the Chicago projects back in the 1980s when a brutal murder captured the attention of the city and raised to the surface many of the issues with the city's public subsidized housing program the questions that were raised then which the movie tries its best to capture as its thesis statement was the woman killed by a bullet or by a larger system of oppression in the projects except that in the real life story both the victim and the murderer were black and it wasn't until the 1992 Candyman adaptation that hollywood inserted a white graduate student as the protagonist a ploy for more commercial appeal which is its own problematic can of worms. That first movie worked, and worked well, for a far more elemental reason. It's a scary-ass movie, horror movie with the, the simple premise, say the name Candyman five times while looking in the mirror, and he appears in the mirror to murder you with his hook for a hand. When you think about invocation horror movies like The Ring which, you know, you watch a cursed horror tape and then you die seven days later, or It Follows, which is where you have sex with the person who is being followed and you start being followed. (laughs) The setup is so easily communicated there isn't much need for a complicated secondary motivations. I don't know about you, but if a guy was chasing me with an axe, that's all the motivation I would really need to run, and I probably wouldn't stop to ask why the axe murderer is so angry. This new movie is a you know, spiritual sequel to the first movie, picking up in the newly gentrified apartment buildings built right over the former projects and following a young, successful black artist who gets inspired to research the neighborhood's history. He ultimately decides to create an art exhibit about the urban legend. As you'd expect, things go horribly wrong from there. Those basic horror elements are what this movie does so well. The whole journey is edge-of-your-seat tense building moments of extreme stress, and delivering on legitimate scares throughout. The technical aspects of production are on point, and really, even better than that. The movie is stylish and really effective. Still, one could tell the entirety of this story, including the hardships of the projects and the neglect of the white power class without ever actually featuring white people. The conclusion reached by our artist protagonist, and this is no spoiler, is that the community Created and maintained the Candyman myth in order to cope with the hardship of their own conditions. Until, of course, in the movie, soon Candyman becomes much more than a myth. But at the helm of this new movie is Monkey Paw Productions, Jordan Peele's company, which has pioneered a wave of racial thriller projects. So Peele, with a screenwriting co credit and a co producing credit here, along with director Nia DaCosta seek to elevate the classic genre tropes as Peele did so masterfully in Get Out and in Us. The result is a movie that's fighting against itself. The propulsive horror thriller slows down at frequent occasions to masquerade as an op-ed think piece. More essay than movie, delivering racial injustice theory that's not incorrect, but is totally incongruous with the story being told. It leans on oppressive white stereotypes like a crutch, albeit... A historically accurate one. Candyman himself doesn't discriminate. If you say his name five times in the mirror, it doesn't matter if you're white, black, brown, green, purple, or blue. You're going to get chopped up into little pieces. In my opinion, acknowledging that I'm just a dumb white guy, it would have been more powerful to see the community deal with this insane problem entirely on its own, emphasizing that the white people are only interested in them when they want to come reclaim the land. Times like these, they're nowhere to be found. Last year, when I was talking about Minari and Tiger Tail, I laid out my theory of the second wave of minority movies, right? In the first wave, minority characters are nothing more than cartoonish stereotypes. I believe we're in the second wave, when minority filmmakers are given the authority to tell their stories, but only on their personal experiences. Too often, those second wave movies only get to present these groups in relation to white people as immigrants or slaves or victims of police abuse. The huge box office success of both Candyman and Sang chi in The Legend of the Ten Rings, way above projections, shows the commercial appetite for stories that could finally push us into the third wave. We'll know we've reached that next echelon of racial equality when minority communities and the movies made about them can have their own nightmarish monsters cutting them into little pieces For no reason whatsoever. All right, you guys know the drill. Every week I give you something new, something old, and something to stream. This week, two somethings new. The first is a movie on Netflix called Worth. And you probably know uh, that Sunday, or excuse me, Saturday, is the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. From a cinematic standpoint, there's World Trade Center, the movie, and more successfully United 93 that have tried to dramatize the events of that day, which is no easy task. If one is willing to take a more broad definition, then The 25th Hour, Man on a Wire, and even Zero Dark Thirty offer much better 9-11 adjacent options if you're looking for a movie to commemorate the occasion this weekend. worth is a tough movie to watch, as it should be, because it focuses on the attorneys who were tasked with securing agreement from victims' families to accept a payout from the government rather than suing. But really strong performances from Michael Keaton and Stanley Tucci anchor a gut-wrenching exploration of the subject matter that feels important as an extension of history. Even if it's not a, you know, quote, great movie, it really, at the very least, is a high-level people-in-rooms talking drama. The other new movie this week I want to talk about is The Card Counter, uh, which will be in theaters as of Friday. So if you're listening to this, it will be out. And uh, very rarely does your boy score early access screeners. But I got the hookup from Focus Features to check out Paul Schrader's latest directorial effort before it hits limited theater, theater releases this weekend. This is the guy that wrote Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, which helps explain why a talent like Oscar Isaac would sign up for the joyless slog of an ex-convict who crawls casinos across the country winning low-level poker tournaments. Tiffany Haddish's charisma as Isaac's manager is really all the more impressive, considering she's given nothing more to do than be a love interest. Meanwhile, Ty Sheridan... Uh, he's passed the threshold of overrated and entered the Dane DeHaan zone of if this guy is in the movie, watch out. It's probably bad. <laughs> the filmmaking is competent. It's just pointless, providing little reason for viewers to continue their interest in the events of the story and failing to build a convincing case for itself as to why any of it matters. On a crowded weekend, feel free to skip this one. Alright, something old this week. It came out in 1956. It's streaming now on Amazon Prime. It is The Killing. If you're a fan of Ocean's Eleven or The Italian Job or Baby Driver or really any other ensemble heist movie that's come out in the last, I don't know, 60 years, you owe a debt to this classic directed by the great Stanley Kubrick. The movie is dated, no doubt, from the overwritten voiceover to the sing-songy dialogue, but It's also well beyond its years technically, which I guess is no surprise from the all time perfectionist Kubrick. And the movie's really clever. The narrative is built around overlapping points of view. So we get that cool trick where we see the same events play out from different perspectives that reveal new details, creating a jigsaw puzzle of quirky characters and funny coincidences that come together into a high stakes heist of a racetrack. It's a really fun watch and as the cherry on top, It's only 80 minutes long. (laughs) So no reason not to stream it now on Amazon Prime. Alright, something to stream this week, and I get asked a lot about what TV shows I'm watching regularly, since it's not something I track in the way I do with movies and I wanted to pass along these three fun streaming comedies that are weekly appointment viewing for me, and I love to just, you know, put them on at the end of the night to unwind. First, it's Only Murders in the Building. This is a new show on Hulu. Uh, Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez uh, are the stars. They are true crime podcast obsessives living in the same swanky New York City apartment building. When an actual murder happens in their building, they try to solve the case, and more importantly, make their own podcast hit podcast about it they're equally incompetent at both tasks leading to the sort of lighthearted and good-natured fun that goes down easy when you flip it on at the end of the night and i've i've really enjoyed the first four episodes that i've seen so far next up is what we do in the shadows season three which is on fx for its cable run but it's also streaming on hulu for the uninitiated this show was adapted from the 2014 movie of the same name written and starring Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement. The movie is great, especially if you're a fan of their brand of humor, like Flight of the Concords or Hunt for the Wilderpeople, etc. I mean, Taika now has made a ton of great movies, but the show is somehow even better. The premise is basically like The Office, except the documentary crew is following around a group of vampires in modern day Staten Island. <laughs> it's bizarre, uh, but it's endearing and it's absolutely hilarious. And lastly, Archer Season 12, which is also on FX and Hulu. By now, if you're not on board with TV's rudest super spy, the show probably isn't for you. But the level of clever writing has sustained every season with a particular brand of bumbling a-hole humor that continues to crack me up. And the voice cast is stacked. Rest in peace to Jessica Walter. Alright, guys that's gonna do it for this week's show uh head over to the newsletter once again at mattcraig.substack.com where uh we have up the trailer for don't look up uh which is the new adam mckay movie with arguably the greatest movie cast ever assembled it really might be let me just read a couple of these names leonardo dicaprio yeah i've heard heard, heard of him (laughs) jennifer lawrence meryl streep jonah hill timothy chalamet Kate blanchett mark rylance Matthew Perry from Friends, (laughs) Ariana Grande, Tyler Perry uh, from Atlanta, (laughs) Kid Cudi, and like literally a half dozen other people that could be at top billing elsewhere. Those people are all in the same movie. It's coming out uh, this fall, directed by Adam McKay, the guy that did, you know, all the Will Ferrell comedies, but then also uh, the big short and recently Vice. Um, This was a huge week for movie trailers. You got blockbusters like The Batman, Matrix Resurrections, Uh, awards movies like come on come on belfast and of course the jake gyllenhaal's netflix movie the guilty all those trailers came out this week so uh plenty of trailer content you check out over at the newsletter and as always once again you can hit me up on twitter at at mr matt craig uh for any of your recommendations of what you guys have been watching what i should be watching what i need to catch up on um as i kind of get back into the swing of things but uh Next week, I think we're going to be talking about uh, Maleficent or Magnificent or (laughs) I forget the name of it, but there's a new horror movie out from James Wan. Uh, So probably be another horror movie, although I need to look and see what else is coming out. Um, We are getting very close to October. So September is kind of like the last chance to catch your breath. And then October, November and December is just going to be fast and furious with movies that I love uh, and movies that if you listen to this podcast or read my newsletter, I hope that you love too, because these are, these are my type of movies. Um, so we have a few more weeks before that, but, uh, get ready. I guess that's all I'm going to say. I probably, I may actually do, I may end up doing an episode just previewing all the movies. Cause for me, it's going to end up being like three or four a week, two, three, four a week that I really want to see, Whew, which I can't wait for that. But, uh, guys until next Friday, I guess I'll see you at the movies.